Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Purdue North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time, we read about Shemuel's final words to the people, official words at least, as he prepares to take his leave and turn over the leadership to the new king, Shaul. Shemuel reminds the people of God's ongoing involvement in their lives and cautions them that truly success will be a function of their allegiance to God more than anything else. The king will not bring triumph unless that king as well is loyal to God. On a very cautionary note, the chapter ended, and if you are doing evil, says Shemuel, both you and your king will be lost. And with that, chapter 13 introduces Shaul, facing his first major challenge, his first major struggle. And as we will see, it is indeed a difficult situation. The chapter begins with a formulaic verse, a typical kind of statement whenever a new king comes to the throne, whether it will be David or whether it will be Ishbosheth, Shaul's son later in the story, whether it will be the kings in the Book of Kings. Typically, the formula is, the king was this old when they came to the throne, and this is how long they reigned for in total. And so the verse begins, Ben Shana Shaul b'molcho, shani malach al Yisrael. Shaul was a year old when he came to the throne and reigned for two years over Israel. Obviously, this is a difficult verse on both counts unless he is a prodigy, and even if he is a prodigy, it's impossible to imagine that Shaul was only a year old when he became king. Problem number one. Problem number two, he reigned over Israel for two years. It's also a difficult statement. As we will see, there are many, many events associated with Shaul's reign, really from now until the end of the first book of Samuel. It's difficult to compress all of that material into a short two years. And so the commentaries grapple with this particular verse. The easiest solution is to say, not that Shaul is a year old when he becomes king, but this is what happened after he had reigned for a year. What happened? What now follows? Two years he reigned over Israel, and here, Perhaps we have to be exact when we read the verse. For two years he reigned over Israel, as if to say something will happen after two years. He will continue to reign, but he will no longer be king over Israel, as it were. Some sort, perhaps, of an ominous allusion to events which are going to take place a little bit later. In any case, the first thing that Shaul does in this chapter a year into his reign, is to collect 3,000 men from Yisrael. 2,000 of them are with Shaul and Michmas, and 1,000 are with Yonatan in Givat Binyamin. And this really is, uh, although it's introduced without much fanfare, this is a critical 
development in ancient Israel. It really is the beginning of the creation of a standing army. From the time of Joshua, we have not had a standing army. Throughout the period of the judges, the judges went to battle with a militia behind them. A militia means they rally the people, you grab your pitchfork or you grab your axe and you run to the battlefield and when the battle is over, you go back home. That's called a militia. But Shaul is now creating something else, a standing army, which means professional soldiers that are going to be trained and they're going to be equipped and they're going to be assigned particular tasks in protecting the realm. And this is, of course, a new development, but not unexpected because after all, that is one of the primary roles of a king is to create that standing army. Significantly, 2,000 are with Shaul and 1,000 with Yonatan. We haven't even met Yonatan yet. We don't know until the end of chapter 14 that he is, in fact, Shaul's oldest son. So he's sort of introduced at this moment obliquely, but already we have a sense he must be significant in his own right because one-third of the fighting force is under his command. Chapter 3 relates that Yonatan strikes down, kills the Philistine governor that is in Geva. The Philistines hear of it. This is officially the beginning of the Israelite rebellion. Is this Shaul's command that Yonatan kill the Philistine governor? Is this Yonatan acting on his own initiative? It is not entirely clear. It seems as if Shaul certainly is aware of the plan. He sounds the shofar, let the Hebrews hear, and sure enough, they hear that the Philistine governor has been killed. They hear that the Philistines are terribly upset, and they quickly rally around Shaul at Gilgal. In the meantime, the Philistines amass a massive force. 30,000 chariots, which is an impossible number to even contemplate, even within the context of exaggerated biblical battles. 6,000 horsemen, a fighting force like the sand on the shores of the sea, and the Philistines enter the hill country and they encamp at Michmas east of Beit El, east of Beit Aven, not far from where Yonatan and his little group of a thousand fighters is stationed. Many Israelites, realizing that the battle is going to be lopsided in the extreme, many Israelites go into hiding, many Israelites cross the Jordan River and flee, in the meantime, Shaul is in Gilgal, which is in the Jordan Valley, far away from the massing of the Philistine force, giving Shaul time to prepare. So Shaul is in Gilgal, and all of the people quickly gather around him. That is, those Israelites that have not fled or gone into hiding. Shaul waits for seven days in accordance to the time that Shemuel had designated, but Shemuel did not come and the people began to scatter. Remember we saw back in chapter 10, Shemuel gave Shaul three signs. When these three signs come true, you will know that you will be successful as king. 
And the last thing that Shimuel said at that time was, wait for me at Gilgal. I will come down to Gilgal in order to offer the burnt sacrifices and the peace offerings. Wait for me for seven days and I will tell you what you must do. And remember at the time we explained, Shemuel introduces this piece of information before Shaul becomes king as if to suggest that his success will depend upon his allegiance, his loyalty, as it were, his submission and surrender to the guidance of the prophet. This is now the moment. Shaul is in Gilgal. Little did he know in chapter 10 that this is how it was going to play itself out. He is in Gilgal waiting for Shemuel. Seven days are ticking down. Shemuel has not yet arrived and the people begin to scatter. Shaul makes a decision. Vayomer Shaul, Shaul said in verse number nine, draw close the burnt sacrifices and the peace offerings and Shaul offered the burnt sacrifice. And as soon as he had completed offering that sacrifice, Shemuel arrived. Shaul went out to greet him, literally to bless him. Shemuel says, what have you done? You were supposed to wait. I was the one who was going to offer the burnt offering. Shaul responds in verse 11, I saw that the people began to scatter. And you did not arrive at the time that was designated. And the Philistines are gathering at Michmas. I said, the Philistines will descend to Gilgal and I have not yet beseeched God with the sacrifice. And therefore I decided, I made a decision, I strengthened myself and I offered the burnt offering. Shemuel's reaction is harsh and unforgiving. You have been foolish. You did not observe the command of God, your Lord, that he commanded you. If only you would have listened, your kingdom would have lasted ad olam forever, but now your kingdom will not last. God will find himself a man in accordance with his heart, and God will command him to be the ruler over his people because you have not observed or kept that which God commanded you. A very, very difficult moment. Shaul is under tremendous pressure. The Philistines are gathering. His own fighters are scattering. Shemuel is nowhere to be seen. How long is he supposed to wait as the clock ticks down? And yet Shemuel's reaction is so unforgiving and harsh. How are we to make sense of this exchange? So number one, I want to point out again that this was, as it were, the test that Shemuel had indicated back in chapter 10. Shaul had no idea at the time that this is what it would look like, but Shemuel made it very clear that success would depend on waiting for him. And at the time we talked about why. Because to wait for Shemuel means that the king is willing to subject himself to the guidance 
and the instruction and the inspiration of the prophet who represents the word of God. And yet, how can we blame Shaul for making that decision? Shmuel did not appear on time. So let's go back and listen to what happens immediately after Shaul offers the offering. At that very moment, he hadn't even finished offering the peace offering, but only the burnt offering, the first of the two. And as he finishes offering the burnt offering, Shmuel arrives. Shaul went out to greet him, to bless him. And Shmuel says, what have you done? So this is very telling. Presumably the first thing out of Shaul's mouth is a greeting or a blessing. And Shemuel responds, what have you done? This is Shaul's opportunity to explain himself. And he says, the people scattered and you didn't show up and the Philistines were gathering and I offered the sacrifice. Which is all extremely reasonable and believable and plausible, but there's only one little problem. Shaul left out the most significant point, which is, I take responsibility for the mistake that I made, and I'm sorry. That Shaul is not able to vocalize. So he will blame the debacle on the people scattering, on Shemuel not showing up, on the Philistines massing. But he bears part of the responsibility, the primary responsibility. And really what we have at this moment is a baptism by fire, so to speak, a difficult test that I don't wish on any of us. But this is the essence of leadership. Leadership means you are charged with holding your people together and inspiring them to be steadfast and resolute even as a battle, an overwhelming battle, stares them in the face. That was Shaul's role. His most important role was to do that. So rather than blaming it on the people or on Shemuel or on the Philistines, what Shaul should have said was, I should have done more to keep the people together and to hold the line until you arrived. But that's not what Shaul says. And so therefore, Shemuel's resp res response is, this is something which will jeopardize your kingdom. If you cannot exercise your authority as king and do what a king has to do fundamentally, which is to lead the people in a moment of great challenge and inspire them to be steadfast, Shemuel leaves. He leaves Gilgal and heads towards Giv'at Binyamin. By the way, that's where Yonatan and his force are stationed. Shaul counts his remaining force. There are only 600 of them left. And to just compound 
the sense of the Israelites being completely outnumbered and outclassed, the chapter concludes with the Philistines beginning to move their force and to attack the Israelites. And verse number 19 reports that the Israelites had no weapons because the Philistines withheld from the Israelites any sort of craftsmen which could have fashioned weapons. There are various explanations for what this might mean. I'd like to suggest a modern one, which makes a lot of sense in the context. In the 12th and 11th centuries BCE in this region of the world, we are moving from the late Bronze Age to the early Iron Age. Epochs are defined by metallurgy. Bronze is an ancient metal formed out of copper, which is soft, and tin, which makes it harder. And for thousands of years, bronze reigned supreme. And then iron was discovered. And when iron is discovered, bronze becomes obsolete because iron is much more durable and much more hard. If you have weapons of bronze and your enemy has weapons of iron, they win, hands down. As this story is unfolding, the Israelites are entering the beginning of the Iron Age. It doesn't happen overnight. But the Philistines already have that knowledge. The Philistines hail from the other side of the Mediterranean. And they have the knowledge of metallurgy that the Israelites do not have. And they keep iron production a closely guarded secret, at least the secret of how to harden that metal so that it is invincible. And so the Israelites don't have that knowledge. They don't have those weapons and they are at a terrible disadvantage. And because the Philistines ruled over the Israelites for a long time, they ensured that the Israelites did not possess that knowledge. And any Israelite that wanted to do something as mundane as sharpening their farm implements, therefore had to go to the Philistines to get the work done. So not only are the Philistines vastly outnumbering the Israelites, not only are they militarily superior, but they also possess weapons that the Israelites do not have. And with that overwhelming image, the chapter ends. I'd like to draw a quick parallel between the events of this chapter and another chapter in the Hebrew Bible, Exodus chapter 32, because there is a lot in common between the two. The sin of the golden calf. In both situations, we have a leader that says, I will arrive at a certain time. Shemuel says, seven days, wait for me. Moshe says, 40 days, wait for me. In both situations, the leader does not show up as anticipated for whatever reason. And the one left in charge, in our case, Shaul, in the case of the golden calf, Aharon, falls prey to a people that feel frightened, anxious, and out of control. And so the people begin to scatter, and Shaul doesn't know how to respond. And the people clamor around Aharon, and Aharon doesn't know how to respond. So he submits and he constructs a golden calf. And in both situations, when the leader comes back, the person left in command 
will offer lots of excuses, but take no responsibility. Shaul says, it's not my fault. The people scattered. You didn't show up. Philistines are gathering. Aharon says, it's not my fault. You know this people has this propensity for wildness, and you didn't show up when you said you would. The implication of the elements of our story are that effectively what we have in this moment, as it were, is a golden calf redux, i.e. to lose resolve in a moment of challenge, as it were, is a prelude to unleashing a golden calf. We will see in chapter 14 very shortly, there is another way, and there was another way, the route that unfortunately Shaul did not take that would have made all the difference. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.